Philip said, our story today uh, in the parasha starts when Pharaoh lets his people go. Um, it runs through the story of the parting of the Red Sea, the song of the sea where Moses and Miriam celebrate their deliverance from the, from the Egyptians, and then the beginnings of the desert wanderings, several stories of Israel's disobedience, grumbling, complaining, um, the Lord providing manna for them. Um, I would love to read all of it for you guys, but I'm trying not to keep you here all night. So I'm only going to read the Song of the Sea, because I think that's the part that most clearly connects with our Haftarah for today. And in our Haftarah, as we turn to the voices of the prophet, we'll be hearing today from the prophet Deborah in the book of Judges, um, Judges chapter 5, which is the long and beautiful song of Deborah and Barak praising the Lord for deliverance from their enemies. Uh, which ties very nicely with the Song of the Sea that we'll be reading from the parasha, as well as the story in chapter 4 of the deliverance that was brought through Deborah, Barak, and Yael. So let's dive in. I'm going to share my screen and pull up the uh, text for today. And beginning in Exodus chapter 15, we're going to read the Song of the Sea, titled here, The Song of Moses and Miriam. It's right after they've been delivered and the Israel Egyptians have all drowned in the Red Sea. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood up like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue. I will overtake them. I will divide the spoils. I will gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretch out your right hand, and the earth swallows your enemies. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall on them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as a stone until your people pass by, Lord, until the people you bought pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, Lord, you made for your dwelling. 
the sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. The Lord reigns forever and ever. When Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them, but the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women followed her with timbrels and dancing. Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. Although um, in this verse 21, we only see the first few lines of the whole song of the sea, uh, it's likely that Miriam led the woman in singing the whole song that Moses had just led all the Israelites in singing. It's somewhat common uh, to reference just the first verse or two of a psalm as a stand-in for the whole thing. Um, Jesus may have done this on the cross when he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, he may have, in fact, cried out all of Psalm 22, and uh, the gospel narrator only includes that verse to reference it, or he may have cried simply the first verse in a clear reference to Psalm 22 that everyone else would have picked up. Um, and so we see both Moses and Miriam, the prophet, leading the people in a song of praise to the Lord. We have another song of praise to the Lord here in the book of Judges. Um, but first, before we get into the song, we're going to read the story. Our Haftarah technically starts in verse 4, but I'm going to read the three verses before because they give a good bit of background. And for anyone who's not intimately familiar with the book of Judges, um, background in general about the book of Judges, um, it's a book that tells of a downward spiral that Israel took after entering the land. There's a cycle that repeats itself over and over again, where the Israelites sin and do evil in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord raises up a king from amongst their neighbors to conquer them and oppress them. They suffer. Finally, they groan and cry out to the Lord. The Lord raises up a judge to deliver them. And then they follow the Lord for a little while before they fall back into sin and the cycle repeats itself. But it's not just a circle that goes around and around. It's actually a downward spiral that continuously gets worse throughout the books. Um, as you go along, the judges get worse and worse and worse. Um, Samson is just a model of sexual immorality, stupidity, <laughs> um, rashness, short-sightedness, a flaming temper, foolishness. Uh, drunkenness. Um, many of the judges are very poor role models. And one theme of the book of Judges is that the Lord can work through anyone, literally anyone, <laughs> to save his people. But here we're near the beginning of the book of Judges, and the downward spiral is only just starting, and the judges are not yet so bad. And in fact, there's nothing negative said about Deborah, and only a small flaw to Barak, the two out of three main characters of this passage. Um, so we're going to dive in. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord into the hands of Yavin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Chatzor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Harosheth Hagoim. Because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. Now Devorah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at the time. She held court under the palm of Devorah, between Ramah and Bethel, in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went up to her 
to have their disputes decided. Um, so in these verses, I'm going to pause and add a little bit of uh, commentary as we go. Um, Deborah is referred to as a judge, um, which the NIV here translates not as judging, but as leading, because judging, uh, shafat in the Hebrew, is a term that can encompass a whole range of meaning. Um, it can mean a military leader, and that's the most common usage of it in the book of Judges, is as a military leader. Um, but it can also be used to mean someone who's governing, someone who's sort of deciding cases and disputes, um, which is what Deborah most clearly seems to be doing. And so the NIV, which is the translation that this is using and also of the commentary that I'll be consulting a little bit, um, decides for the sake of clarity, since Deborah is not a military leader, that they'll use the term judge in this book to refer to military leaders. And what Deborah is doing, they'll refer to as leading Israel non-militarily. She's deciding disputes, administrating justice, making important decisions for the nation and the land. Um, here we see Deborah referred to as the wife of Lapidot. Uh, in Hebrew, that's literally eshet Lapidot. So the Hebrew word for woman is the same word. Um, so eshet Lapidot could be translated as the wife of a man named Lapidot, um, but it could also be translated a woman of flames. A Lapid is a flame. So there's an Israeli politician, Yair Lapid, whose name literally means like, he will light a flame, which is a very cool poetic name. Um, and so uh, the Talmud refers to this saying that Deborah is a woman of flames, uh, which could be a title of praise. She's a fiery woman full of the spirit of God. Um, or according to the Talmud, this could be a reference to the fact that she according to the Talmud, made wicks for the tabernacle in Shiloh and actually was so good at spreading God's light by making quality wicks that he chose her to be the leader of his people. Um, a fun bit of uh, extra uh, information supplied by the Talmud. Um, she sat under a palm, the palm of Deborah named after her, um, between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went up to her to have her disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you ten thousand men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Yavin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River, and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Devorah went with Barak to Kadesh. There Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command. Devorah also went up with him. Nochever the Kenite had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Chovav, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Za'an-Nanim near Kadesh. Uh, now this is a bit of foreshadowing here. Chever and his family are going to be very important in this story. And so I'll take the time to explain that he's related to Moses' brother-in-law uh, through Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. Um, Jethro is a bit of an interesting character in that he seems to worship and follow the God of Israel, uh, 
after the God delivers them from the Red Sea. Yet before that, he was a priest of other gods. And it's not super clear all of what his possible conversion may have entailed. Um, it's not super clear whether his family followed the God of Israel exclusively, followed the God of Israel and the old gods, what may have happened. But it's very likely um, that Hever the Kenite and his family, if they're descended from Moses's in-laws, knew of the God of Israel and probably followed or worshipped him in at least some capacity, even if it was alongside other gods or sort of by proxy. They certainly were not Israelites. Um, Jethro and his family didn't convert and join the tribe of Israel, but they clearly had some knowledge of the God of Israel. Um, and you'll see they act according to it later on. Now, when they told Sisera that Barak, son of Avinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned from Harosheth Hagoim to the Kishon River all his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. Then Devorah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harosheth Hagoim, and all Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Yael, the wife of Hever the Kenite, because there was an alliance between Yavin, king of Chatzor, and the family of Hever the Kenite. Yael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. In case you don't know, milk back in those days was not skim milk. It was very creamy and had a tendency to make you a bit sleepy if you had a lot of milk and the richness of it. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone in there, say no. But Yael, Hever's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground and he died. Just then, Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera and Yael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with a tent peg through his temple, dead. On that day, God subdued Yavin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites. And the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Yavin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. On that day, Devorah and Barak, son of Abinoam, sang this song. When the princes in Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. Hear this, you kings. Listen, you rulers. I, even I, will sing to the Lord. I will praise the Lord, the God of Israel, in song. When you, Lord, went out from Seir, when you marched from the land of Edom, the earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water, the mountains quaked before the Lord, the one of Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Yael, the highways were abandoned. Travelers took to winding paths. Villagers in Israel would not fight. They held back until I, Devorah, arose. 
until I arose, a mother in Israel. God chose new leaders when war came to the city gates, but not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. My heart is with Israel's princes, with the willing volunteers among the people. Praise the Lord! You who ride on white donkeys, sitting on your saddle blankets, and you who walk along the road, consider the voice of the singers at the watering places. They recite the victories of the Lord, the victories of his villagers in Israel. Then the people of the Lord went down to the city gates. Wake up, wake up, Devorah. Wake up, wake up, break out in song. Arise, Barak, take captive your captive, son of Abinoam. The remnant of the nobles came down. The people of the Lord came down to me against the mighty. Some came from Ephraim, whose roots were in Amalek. Binyamin was with the people who followed you. From Machir, captains came down. From Zebulun, those who bear commander's staff. The princes of Issachar were with Deborah. Yes, Issachar was with Barak, sent under his command into the valley. In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Why did you stay among the sheep pens to hear the whistling for the flocks? In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Don, why did he linger by the ships? Asher remained on the coast and stayed in his coves. The people of Zebulun risked their very lives. So did Naphtali on the terraced, terraced fields. Kings came, they fought. The kings of Canaan fought at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They took no plunder of silver. From the heavens, the stars fought. They fought against Sisera. The river Kishon swept them away. The age-old river, the river Kishon. March on, my soul, be strong. Then thundered the horse's hooves. Galloping, galloping, go his mighty steeds. Curse Meroz said the angel of the Lord. Curse its people bitterly, because they did not come to help the Lord, to help the Lord against the mighty. Most blessed of woman be Yael, the wife of Hever the Canite, most blessed of tent-dwelling woman. He asked for water, and she gave him milk. In a bowl fit for nobles, she brought him curdled milk. Her hand reached for the tent peg, her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. At her feet he sank, he fell, there he lay. At her feet he sank, he fell, where he sank, there he fell, dead. Through the window peered Sisera's mother. Behind the lattice she cried out, Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why is the clatter of his chariots delayed? The wisest of her ladies answer her. Indeed, she keeps saying to herself, Are they not finding and dividing the spoils? A woman or two for each man. Colorful garments as plunder for Sisera. Colorful garments embroidered. Highly embroidered garments from my neck. All this as plunder. So may all your enemies perish, Lord. But may all who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength. Then the land had peace 40 years. So I have three main points, um, like a good Protestant sermon, <laughs> that I would like us to take away from this text. Um, things that connect the parasha with the haftarah. The first is the importance of praising God for his deliverance. 
The second is going to be the way in which God accomplishes his work through imperfect servants. Um, and then finally, uh, it would be incomplete to talk about Deborah without talking about biblical womanhood. And so we're going to look at what this text has to say um, about how best to honor God as a woman. Um, beginning with praise and praising the Lord for deliverance. There are 10 famous songs in Jewish history that are meant to sum up Jewish history. The first one is the Song of the Sea, which we read in our parasha told by Moses. Um, the Song of Devorah, this song here, is also one of those famous songs. The 10th song is apparently one that has not yet been written, but that will be sung during the age of the Messiah. Um, of course, as Christians, we have many songs from the age of the Messiah we have the song of Mary, um, the song of Zechariah. We have the song of um, Simeon, all of which are included in our Anglican liturgy. Um, in fact, in our Anglican liturgy, we have 87 canticles that are approved uh, to be chosen, coming primarily from Scripture, uh, also from the Apocrypha, and a few that were written very early in church history. Um, that are approved to be used in common worship. And the first of these is the Song of the Sea, uh, called by Anglicans the Song of Moses and Miriam. The Song of Deborah is not one of those. Maybe it should be. It's beautiful. Um, but I think we do tend to focus on songs that sum up main gospel themes. Um, and I guess the Song of Deborah is fairly specific to this small period in Israel's history. So we don't use it in common worship, but it's still a beautiful song. Um, and I think there's a reason we have so many canticles, um, so many historical songs that don't just praise God, but praise him specifically for what he's done in specific times and places through specific people that have a lot of richness and beauty for us to embrace. Um, throughout scripture, we see God commanding his people, Israel, to commemorate the past, to celebrate the past in their holidays, to teach their history to their children. Um, the Israeli Jewish holidays are really beautiful in the ways that they do that. I remember attending a Pesach Passover dinner uh, with a family that I love in Israel a few years ago. And it was so cool to see how the rituals that they do every single year as part of Pesach include the children and pull everyone into the story of the Exodus and the deliverance of Egypt, not just as something that happened to those people way far away, but as my story that defines my identity and who I am and how I relate to God. I have been delivered by the Lord from Egypt and brought into freedom. Um, the children eat the matzah that their ancestors ate in the wilderness. They recline um, as princes in the land of Israel they were delivered into. Um, they aren't allowed to pour their own wine, or if they're children, grape juice. Uh, they have to pour it for each other because princes and royalty don't pour their own wine, and they're celebrating that the Lord has brought them out of slavery into royalty. And these holidays are important because they don't just teach us facts about history. They make us embrace the story and turn it into our own story. And that's what these songs can do too. Um, these songs engage a part of us that's deeper than just knowledge. Human beings are not usually transformed by knowledge alone, but these songs have a lot of transformative power. Um, in a song, you adopt a certain perspective. Um, 
these songs are adopting very particular interpretations of the past, right? They're not plain history just laying out facts and chronologies. They are very, very biased <laughs> history, right? Um, because they're teaching us how to think about this story, how to feel about it. And when we take when we sing these songs and we really embrace them, um, we ought to be putting on this perspective, putting ourselves in the shoes of the people who are singing, remembering the events that have happened as though they've happened to us, bringing them into our identity and our relationship with God. I would encourage you uh, when you're in church and you're singing worship songs, and especially the historical sorts of songs we sing that tell the story of Jesus's sacrifice and death and resurrection, um, or of our experience of salvation and moving from darkness to light, um, I would encourage you to really think about what you're seeing. Focus on the imagery, imagine it, picture it, enter into it. Think about the words you're speaking when you promise God to love him, to follow him, when you thank him, when you praise him and declare to the world how good he is. Think about the words you're saying. Ask yourself if you mean them. How can you mean them more deeply? How can you meditate on them? How can you sing with your heart, not just your lips, not even just your mind, but with your heart too? Um, songs are here to engage all of us. Music has a way of engaging parts of us that simple words and facts and chrono chrono chronological histories don't tend to. Um, and these are some beautiful, some beautifully structured songs full of imagery. Um, if we focus just on the song of Deborah here, um, the NIV application commentary divides it into five stanzas. The first two stanzas call for praise in God. Um, that's um, up to here. Yeah. Um, call for praise in God. They call out to everyone. They use lots of different images. There's an image of highways that have been abandoned, um, that no one travels on them for fear of the danger because they're under oppression. And then there's an image of people traveling along the highways, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sing at streams and places of rest and refreshing. Um, praise the Lord. And we're holding these images together, moving between them. They're beautiful. The second stanza here um, focuses on the tribes of Israel, those who came out to fight and those who did not come out to fight. That is recorded, put down in history. Honor and shame is everlastingly recorded in these verses based on the actions of these tribes who chose to fight and not to fight. Then we have here the fourth stanza, a description of the war, which is beautiful and it's rhythmic too. And you've got to hear it. You've got to imagine it set to music. You have here the river Kishan sweeping them away. You have also horses hooves galloping, galloping go his mighty steeds. And these are images that go together, right? Thundering waters, thundering hooves, images of victory of the Lord's power and might taking over the enemy. You've got to imagine it to music, to da -da 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 like to, to a beat, to a power, to a feeling, swelling, um, musical vibes. Um, and then in our fifth stanza, we have the death of Sisera at the hands of Yael and being mourned by Sisera's mother. And here, I think, is some of the richest imagery of the whole song. We have Yael's action as Sisera is killed, like zoomed in and almost slow motion. Her hand reaches for the tent peg. 
her right hand for the workman's hammer. You can almost picture her slow motion, pulling them, holding them up, striking Sisera. It's repeated, crushed his head, repeated, shattered and pierced his temple. There's vivid, scarring, graphic sorts of words. Um, there's some play with words that, again, only really make sense musically. Here, at her feet he sank, he fell, there he lay. At her feet he sank, he fell, where he sank, there he fell, dead. You've got to imagine this in music, right? I mean, I can imagine it here, sort of the drama, the tension, and then it breaks and slows down. And you, like, I don't know if that's actually how the tune went. That's just how I'm picturing it in my head. But there's, there's so much going on here that we miss when we just take these as old, ancient, dead words. They are alive. They were alive then. Uh, they can be alive to us as well. Um, there's some very interesting parallels between this song here and the Song of the Sea in, in Exodus um, that help tie together the parasha and the haftarah and perhaps explain why it was chosen. Um, we have a parallel between the Red Sea sweeping over and drowning all of the um, all of the Egyptians, and the image here of the River Kishon that sweeps them away. Um, we don't know if the River Kishon literally flooded. There is Jewish tradition that states that actually God sent a heat wave, and all the soldiers of Sisera in their metal armor grew so hot that they went to cool themselves in the River Kishon, and God then flooded the River Kishon, sweeping them away and drowning them without the Israelites even lifting a finger, which is certainly possible. That sounds like the kind of thing he's done plenty of times throughout the Old Testament. It's also possible that this is more allegorical. The power of a raging river sort of symbolizes the power of God as he gives victory to the Israelites and sweeps away the enemy. But it seems to have some very clear ringing um, overtones of the exodus and the flooding of the Red Sea. You also see in both these psalms, none of the Israelites are praised. All of the glory goes to God. Yael is praised, and we'll have some more to say about that here. Um, but as for the military victory, it doesn't praise the Israelites for fighting valiantly, for being so strong, for winning in their own strength, especially not when it's the Red Sea that did all the work for them. Um, these psalms clearly give the glory to God alone. And both these songs are sung by a man and a woman singing together, here by Deborah and Barak singing together. And in the song of Moses and Miriam, Moses and Miriam singing together. Um, and so the lesson I want us to take away from here, um, don't forget to praise God after he has delivered you. <laughs> and also praise God for the way that he has delivered our ancestors in the past. Um, it, I think it's beautiful how the Jews take their ancestral history and make it their own. And I want to encourage us to do that with the history of Israel and the church. The way that God has worked with his people is the same way he works with us today. We are the same people. He is the same God. This is our story and we need to praise him for it. Um, but both for in the past and when we see his deliverance in our own lives, praising him is important. Um, Jesus tells a parable of 10 lepers who were healed and only one came back to say thanks so let's be like that one leper. Let's say thank you to God. And let's say it not just as a token, empty phrase, but let's really mean it. Let's sing songs of gratitude to the Lord and thank him with our whole being. 
for what he has done in saving us. And what he has done, he has accomplished through imperfect people. This is certainly a theme of, as I mentioned, it's a theme of scripture as a whole, really, um, that God works through all the least likely characters. I hope you all come from churches that have really driven this into you. I know I have. My church growing up emphasized this all the time, and I think it's a very good thing to emphasize. But one danger we run into in focusing so much on this is we can start to wonder if our actions really matter at all, if God always chooses the least likely and the least qualified people, if he works through people that continually mess up. Does it really matter what we do or not? And the answer is it does. It matters. And so we've got two truths to hold in tension. One is that God is all-powerful. His will will be done. His purposes will be accomplished regardless of our failures. And he is all-loving. His love for us does not depend on our actions, will not be greater or less depending on what we do. That's one truth to hold on to. And the other truth to hold on to is that we make real choices with real consequences that really matter. And God interacts with human beings throughout scripture as agents, as partners in his work. What we do and don't do matters. And we see these two truths working together in the life of Barak. He hesitates. Um, he insists that Deborah come with him to battle because he's too scared. He doesn't trust the Lord when the Lord has insisted that he will give the victory into Barak's hands. And Barak says, I don't know. I think I need Deborah there just to make sure. Um, now, the Lord still works through him. He doesn't throw him out and go find someone else. He doesn't change his mind and decide not to give victory to the Israelites just because Barak is a bit cowardly. He still works through them. He still gives the victory. And Barak is still a wonderful character that's praised in scripture. Um, he is one of the heroes of this story. The Lord was faithful and worked through him. But also, Barak's hesitancy had consequences. Sisera was given into the hand of a woman, and Yael receives the highest glory in this story, in this song, and not Barak. Um, so I hope, I have more I could say here, but I don't want to go on forever. Um, but I do also want to point out in the parasha, um, we see a very similar pattern in the life of the Israelites in the parts of the parasha that I haven't read today, where they're wandering in the wilderness. Um, in fact, in Numbers, we see very clearly when Israel refuses to enter the land for fear of the people who live there, God doesn't destroy all of them. He maybe threatens to, but he doesn't in the end. <laughs> he does still bring them into the land. They are still his people. His will will go forward. They do inherit the land. But they wander in the desert for 40 years first. And so our consequences, our actions have consequences. They do matter. But also, we will never, ever <laughs> change God's love for us. And we will never, ever thwart his will. And I hope, I hope this enables us to serve him, um, knowing that what we do matters and also not being paralyzed by stress and fear about the consequences of our actions, because ultimately it is in the Lord's hands and he is a God of mercy and grace. The important thing that he asks for is simply for us to participate in his work. Um, the tribes, we see that here when he praises some tribes, um, Oh, sorry, I'm in the Exodus passage in Judges. When he praises the tribes who showed up and participated, 
and condemns the tribes who did not come out. What he asked for was participation. It didn't matter how many men were sent or how valiantly they fought. What matters is participation. What God looks for is a willing heart. And we get to choose whether we want to be a part of his work or not, whether we say yes all of God and participate, um, or whether we say no, in which case the work of God will still go on, but not through us. Uh, as it's told to Esther in the book of Esther, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. So this brings me to my third and final point to focus on for this passage, which is what do we have to say in this passage about biblical womanhood? Which is something I've been a little bit nervous to tackle, as Philip can tell you. Um, but it does seem to me incomplete to talk about the story of Deborah without talking about this, not only because the story of Deborah is famous in the Bible as one, as one of the great examples of female heroes of the Old Testament that's often drawn on, um, but also as I've been reading this story and reading commentaries of it, I've become more and more convinced that specifically are a focus, that the narrator is intentionally drawing a focus to in this story. Um, we have, of course, the fact that the story starts with a female judge and prophet, Deborah, um, who is held up as a really positive role model. Um, most of the judges, as I mentioned before, have lots of negative character traits, but there is nothing negative said about Deborah in this story. Um, she is unequivocal, unequivocally um, <laughs> a positive example for us to be inspired by. Um, and that's important to emphasize here because not everyone has always agreed with this. Um, in fact, in the Talmud, in the Megillah specifically, um, Rabbi Nachman talks about her uh, when he says that arrogance is not befitting a woman. There were two arrogant women whose names were hateful. One was named Wasp. Deborah's name actually means bee, but I guess Wasp is close enough. And the other, Rat. Uh, Holda, the prophet prophetess that Josiah sends to when the book of the law is discovered in the temple, who explains it to him. Um, her name means weasel, close enough to rat. Um, of the wasp, it is written, she sent and summoned Barak rather than go to him. Of the rat, it is written, tell the man rather than tell the king. So Rabbi Nachman is saying that both Deborah and Holda, in his eyes, are arrogant woman, they're not humble enough because Deborah sent and summoned Barak rather than go to him herself. And um, Hulda uh, referred to Josiah as a man rather than more respectfully as a king. Um, I bring this up here mainly as an example that no matter what you do right, someone will always have a bone to pick with you <laughs> and there will always be flaws to find. Um, but there's nothing in the biblical text to suggest that Deborah was acting pridefully when she sent to Barak. Um, she sent for him because the Lord commanded um, for Barak to be the one to go and to lead Israel's armies. Um, and Deborah obeyed the Lord and sent to him. Um, sorry, going back to the focus on women in this passage, we have Deborah, of course, Um we also have Yael, who is praised heavily in the song. She's the only person praised. She gets most of the text of this story, um, telling the story of Yael and how she killed um, Sisera and her actions, which are told in great detail. Um, but even more so, 
than just Yael as a person. The fact that a woman was given the glory and was the one to kill Sisera is one of the main themes of this chapter. The fact that Barak forfeited his role. He was not the only one to lead the Israelites in battle, but a woman came with him and received equal glory with him for that. And he was not the one to kill Sisera. A woman was the one to kill Sisera and received the glory for that, um, is one of the main thing, themes of this passage. Um, even when Sisera's death is recounted, it's told through the lens of woman. Um, we see a huge focus here. It's Sisera's mother who looks for him, grieves for him, her ladies-in-waiting who answer her. These are examples of evil woman and what not to be, whereas Deborah and Yael will look at as examples of good woman. Um, but it seems clear to me that this passage has a lot to say about woman and a strong focus on woman, and it would be incomplete to discuss it without focusing on that. And even in the parasha, actually, um, there's only a few verses relating to Miriam, but there are some very common verses for people who want to reference women in the Torah. Um, and in fact, the Jewish synagogue that I attended briefly in Israel had these verses about Miriam taking her timbrel and leading the woman and dancing and praising the Lord. They had those verses painted above the woman's section in the synagogue where the woman would sit and listen to the Torah and the preaching and join in the prayers. Um, that was sort of the verses that were chosen to represent and inspire woman. Um, so the parasha also fits with this theme. Um, so I want to begin by briefly noting that Deborah is here called a prophet. Um, and Miriam also is called a prophet in our parasha. Um, in Jewish tradition, there are seven female prophets in the Old Testament, not all of whom are recognized as prophets by Christians, actually. We have Sarah, Miriam, Deborah, Hannah, Abigail, Huldah, and Esther. Um, if, on the other hand, we take a more traditional Christian list, which only takes women to whom the title prophet uh, Neviah, the feminine version of Nevi, prophet, is applied. Um, we end up with a slightly different list spanning the Old and New Testament. We have Miriam, Deborah, Huldah, Noadiah, the wife of Isaiah, Anna, the four virgin daughters of Philip, and Jezebel, a character in Revelation. Um, there are clearly many more male and female prophets that are not named in the Old and New Testament. 1 Corinthians 11 gives instructions for women to cover their head when they pray and prophesy in public. So clearly um, there were many female prophets doing so. When we look at this list of prophets, we find that some were co-prophets with men whom they served alongside. Miriam served alongside Aaron and under Moses. Isaiah's wife obviously was married to Isaiah, a huge prophet. Anna, together with Simeon, prophesied in the temple and welcomed Christ with um complimenting prophecies about his birth. Some of them stand alone without any accompanying prophets, Deborah, Huldah, and Philip's daughters. And we see also in this list both true and false prophets. Just as there were false male prophets, there were also false female prophets in the Old and New Testament, Noadiah in the Old Testament, and Jezebel from the book of Revelation in the New Testament. Um, so Deborah is a prophet that we find fulfilling that. Um, but I want to focus primarily today on Deborah's character. 
um, on what we can learn from her example, um, not on her role or um, position within society, but on her actions, on her personality, um, and on how we can imitate Deborah as an example of faith for both men and women. But focusing specifically here on Deborah as a woman, I'm going to bring in some insight from Proverbs 31, because that's the most traditional verses we tend to go to as an example of biblical womanhood. They're beautiful verses. Um, they're a compelling example of a woman. And the Zoom bar is in the way, so give me a moment to pull up Proverbs 31. <laughs> here we go. Um, so this is instructions from a king to his son, telling him what kind of wife to look for. And says, A wife of noble character, who can find? She is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She's like the merchant ships bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it is still night. She provides food for her family and portions for her female servants. She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her tasks. She sees that her trading is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. In her hand, she holds the distaff and grasps the spindle with her fingers. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. When it snows, she has no fear for her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. She makes coverings for her bed. She is clothed in fine linen and purple. Her husband is respected at the city gate, where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies the merchants with sashes. She is clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. She speaks with wisdom and faithful instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children arise and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Honor her for all that her hands have done and let her work spring her praise at the city gate. So before I move on to noting how Deborah embodies this sort of example in some practical, practical tangible ways we can learn from, I want to pull out a few of the character traits we see here. Um, so that we can look at those more specifically in the example of Deborah. The first character trait that jumps out at us, we'd have to be blind to miss it reading this passage, is that this woman is hardworking. Um, she gets up while it is still night to provide food, to provide food for her family. Um, she watches over her family and does not eat the bread of idleness. Um, she is constantly working. This is all about things that she's doing. She's weaving, she's buying, she's selling, she's planting, she's um, doing everything, preparing food. Um, she is hardworking and she is a competent businesswoman. Here we see that she considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. Um, also, she sees that her trading is profitable. Um, and down here, she makes linen garments and sells them and supplies the merchants with sashes. She has multiple different businesses going on here. She is a very competent businesswoman. 
Um, she's an initiative taker. She goes and considers a field and buys it. She selects wool and flax. She gets up while it is still night. She's not just responding. She's not being acted upon. She's not just doing what she's told. She's taking initiative. She's having ideas. She's going and working and building up and providing for her family. Um, she's a teacher. She speaks with wisdom and faithful instruction is on her tongue. She is strong. Here we see that she is clothed with strength and dignity. Um, and above, we read that her arms are strong for her task. She is a strong, independent woman. She is generous. Here we see she opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. Um, she's a good wife and mother. Her children arise and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Um, she is praised for the things that she accomplishes, not just her husband's accomplishments or her children's accomplishments, but her own, too. Honor her for all that her hands have done, and let her works bring her praise at the city gate. And finally, the most important thing we see about a Proverbs 31 woman is that she fears the Lord, and a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Um, this passage pretty much always makes me think of my mom. Uh, when I was a kid, I can tell you, without a doubt, my mom was the most hardworking, competent, capable woman I knew, uh, person I knew. I used to think that the whole world would be a much better place if she was just in charge of everything. Um, maybe she thinks that too, but... <laughs> Um, <laughs> uh, she, I can tell you that she has been a great blessing to me and my siblings and my dad, and we will rise up and call her blessed. Uh, my dad can probably tell you she has organized his life for him, <laughs> um, doing all of these things that the Proverbs 31 woman does, working hard. Um, she worked at least one, if not two jobs for most of my childhood and the time that I can remember. She volunteered with the um, with our school and with my Girl Scout troop and coached basketball for us for a year or two and taught Sunday school and always, always had time for us. And I am very grateful for her example um, of many, if not all, of the traits of a godly woman. Um, but we're also today going to look at the example of Deborah. Um, and how she fulfills the trait of a woman who's hardworking, a competent businesswoman, an initiative taker, a teacher, strong, generous, a good wife and mother, an accomplished woman who fears the Lord. Um, I'm going to go back to, nope, sorry, the bit about Deborah here. Well, she is clearly hardworking because she's judging the entire nation of Israel, which is a huge task. Um, according to the Targum, she is also a competent businesswoman. The Targum is the Aramaic uh, paraphrase of the Old Testament that was used by Jews in Jesus's day and beyond. And here in verse 5, where it says that she held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, the Targum adds that she owned property in Ramah and in Bethel and in Ephraim. Um, specifically, I think, although I'm not sure I remember perfectly, um, date palms near Jericho, uh, vineyards, and some white clay mines in Ephraim. Um, so she had multiple businesses going on as well, of course, as making wicks for the sanctuary in Shiloh. <laughs> um, 
She is clearly an initiative taker. She's the one that sends for Barak in order to plan this attack at the bequest of the Lord. Yael, we will also see as an initiative taker who goes and stops Sisera and calls him into her tent and murders him, um, and then goes and stops Barak and calls him in to show him uh, Sisera. She does not just respond, but proactively takes initiative. But we're focusing on Deborah here. Sorry. Um, Deborah is a teacher of all Israel proclaiming the word of the Lord to all of the people, speaking with wisdom, um, deciding disputes between the people. Um, she's clearly strong. She has far more courage than Barak um, and accompanies him to the battlefield. Um, as for Generous, well, she does seem to spend all of her time governing Israel, um, but it's unclear if she's also financially generous. So I'll give you that. The story doesn't apply every single one of these traits perfectly to her, but certainly enough of them to inspire us, I think. As for being a wife and a mother, not much is said about her husband or what she's like as a wife, and nothing is said about whether or not she has any biological children. But um, she calls herself a mother in Israel here in the song. And so I want to take this as an opportunity to remind us that motherhood and fatherhood can certainly be broader than biological children. Um, we need mentors and guides. We need spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers in our churches um, and members of our churches who don't have their own biological children are still very valuable members of the family. Um, fathers, aunts, uncles, brothers, and sisters of all of us, um, and we ought to honor them for their spiritual motherhood and fatherhood as well, which is, is very valuable. Um, okay, back to Deborah. Well, she is clearly honored for the works of her hands. I mean, there's a whole song praising her that she gets to sing. It's written down in scripture so that we, even thousands of years later, can praise her for the things that she has done. And she most certainly provides an example of fearing the Lord as she obeys him and delivers his word and um, is, is a servant of the Lord in this passage. And I think this is helpful um, because while we can look at Proverbs 31 and see sort of a list of traits dressed up in a description of some sort of idealized woman that we've never met and don't actually know, um, it's much easier to mimic an example that we see. Um, and here, Deborah is an example we see of someone who follows the Lord fearlessly um, and faithfully that we should all be inspired by. Um, and I think also in our own lives, uh, having examples is important. Um, Deborah is, of course, not just an example for women, but also for men of how to be a human being following and serving the Lord. Um, and I'm going to skip some more of the stuff that I was going to say because it's been going on for quite a while now. <laughs> so I'm going to end with a reading from St. Ambrose. Um, St. Ambrose was a bishop of Milan in Italy from 374 to 397. Um, he wrote lots of hymns. He was part of uh, St. Augustine's coming to faith, a famed theologian, one of the four doctors of the church next to Jerome, Augustine, and Gregory the Great, um, a wonderful saint to be inspired by. And we're read a brief bit of what he writes about Deborah. One side note, he seems to be, for some reason, under the impression that Deborah is a widow, which I don't think she is, um, because this is in a part of a book or a teaching he has about widows 
Um, he might also just be sort of not distinguishing very well between widows and other women doing things outside of their husbands, but ignore the fact that he calls her a widow. She's not. And let's hear what he says about Deborah from the uh, 4th century AD. And in order that it may not seem as if only one widow had fulfilled this inimitable work, it seems in no way doubtful that there were many others of equal or almost equal virtue for good seed corn usually bears many ears filled with grains. Do not doubt, then, that that ancient seed time was fruitful in the characters of many women. But as it would be tedious to include all, consider some, and especially Deborah, whose virtue scripture records for us. For she showed not only that widows have no need of the help of a man, inasmuch as she, not at all restrained by the weakness of her sex, undertook to perform the duties of a man and did even more than she had undertaken. And at last, when the Jews were being ruled under the leadership of the judges, because they could not govern them with manly justice or defend them with manly strength, and so wars broke out on all sides, they chose Deborah, by whose judgment they might be ruled. And so one widow both ruled many thousands of men in peace and defended them from the enemy. There were many judges in Israel, but no woman before was a judge, as after Joshua there were many judges, but none was a prophet besides Deborah. And I think that her judgeship has been narrated and her deeds described so that women should not be restrained from deeds of valor by the weakness of their sex. A widow, she governs the people. A widow, she leads armies. A widow, she chooses generals. A widow, she determines wars and orders triumphs. So, then, it is not nature which is answerable for the fault or which is liable to weakness. It is not sex, but valor, which makes strong. And in time of peace, there is no complaint, and no fault is found in this woman, whereas most of the judges were causes of no small sins to the people. And on that note, I will end our teaching for today on the book of Deborah and go ahead and open it up to questions and discussions. <laughs>